Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're getting real. We're talking about documentaries. And we're talking about the king of the doc, Freddie Wiseman. Frederick Wiseman. Mm. The great documentary filmmaker. The godfather of direct cinema. The man. And you say that this is the important cinema club. Well, have I got important topics for you. Oh, boy. School. (gasps) The art gallery, <laughs> the police station, hospitals, juvenile courts, welfare offices, La Central co- Park. La Comédie Française. Ah, uh, yes, the, the crazy horse uh, <laughs> striptease dancers. All the most important subjects mm. have been in front of his mighty camera. And does he judge? Nay, he just presents it as it is. Oh, I or think does he, he? I think he judges just a <laughs> yeah. little bit. Oh, okay. And if he encourages you to judge, isn't that close enough? When you're talking about docs, you're talking about Mr. Michael Moore. And then after that, you're talking about the god of docs, Frederick Wiseman. Probably the exact opposite of Michael Moore. Uh, you're pretty much almost 100%. Frederick Wiseman does not impose himself on his cinema. He does not question his cinema. He just documents his cinema. And the way that he edits it, he said himself that he edits, edits it to reflect his own experiences and what he learned by going through these things. But he doesn't want to impose anything very bluntly to his audience. He picks a subject, usually an institution, like, say, the National Gallery in London or the New York Public Library or any 30 other topics. Mm-hmm. Uh he goes there for anywhere from a few a few weeks to a few months, takes 100 hours of footage, many, many hours of footage. And he said himself that he doesn't actually do much research when he goes and does his doc, because when he's there, he wants to be able to document anything that he sees, because he hates the idea of doing research at a location, and he sees something interesting happening, and he doesn't have his camera to record it. And he has no thesis going in mm-hmm. either. Uh, Although I would suggest that he develops a thesis as he goes along. He said that he actually develops the thesis principally while he's editing the film. But he does watch the rushes at the end of every night. And he does talk with his cameraman, who's usually his only other um, collaborator when he's shooting these docs, about what they should get, what angles or what scenes they need to be able to tell the story fully. And you mentioned that he doesn't impose himself on the subject. He doesn't use any narration. He doesn't doesn't use subtitles uh, subtitles he doesn't use non-diegetic music Mm -hmm. and i think what's so fascinating about him is despite all this he does communicate ideas Mm -hmm. he just doesn't insist upon those ideas well they just kind of hang there that Mm -hmm. when you're trapped um with the people that he's documenting and he's always documenting institutions that's his thing Mm -hmm. that like all the things that we said school even like ballet or the library. These are institutions and he sees how they run and he kind of wants the audience to get their own meaning out of it, even though that, you know, he's editing it in a way that he has an idea of what that meaning is. So here's an example. One of my favorite examples from one of his movies that I've seen. Mm -hmm. It's the end of Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, which was his film from 2017. The last two scenes of the movie, the second last scene 
this is a documentary that chronicles the New York Public Library from the Bronx to the Battery. Every everything about the library is in it. It's over three hours long. Mm-hmm. Second last scene, it's a library in I think Harlem, very small library. An entirely black community group is there, most of them parents, talking about the sort of things that are being taught in their textbooks. And how important it is as well for the library institution to exist, to be able to help students learn stuff. Because they're talking about the way that slavery is talked about in textbooks. Mm -hmm. They're talking about, they talk about them as servants, or but they were actually slaves, Mm -hmm. or they were brought over. What does brought over mean? I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen it. I can't remember the exact terminology. And then the conversation keeps going. They start talking about gentrification in the neighborhood. So that's the second last scene. The last scene is at the 42nd Street branch, the big library branch. It's this lecture on classical music, and it's a very well-heeled crowd. And, you know, this is a movie where we've seen, like, celebrities come to the library. Uh, we, we've seen people, like, reading audiobooks for the blind. We've seen people learning how to do Braille. We've seen so much sharing and so much community building. And these last two shots, he's able to communicate this very nuanced message. The way I interpret it is the library can be many things. Here are two things the library does. They're both good. They're both wonderful. One of them is under threat. Mm-hmm. And one of them is essential and, and very important. And the other one is a luxury. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be wonderful to have both of these, but one of them's under threat. That speech is such a perfect uh, encapsulation of like what I hate about those kind of speeches, which is someone reading something in a very calm, mannered voice and the sound being like muffled, like it's perfect sound. So it's never too high. It's never too low. It just kind of hangs there <laughs> and there's no excitement going on. Well, compare that to uh, earlier in the film where someone is giving a lesson on communism to a class of like 10 people <laughs> and she is so energized and she is so involved in what's going on. And it shows that the library system does the <laughs> both these things. Yeah. And it's, you know, once you get to a certain level, you don't use slides anymore like that. You're not standing in front of those slides but i think one of them is more important and more interesting than the other but they both exist and as the documentary says themselves the more rich people that invest the more the city will put money into the library which will then allow the administrative branch to funnel it to places that actually need money right we see so many board meetings and and so many meetings of the bureaucrats of the library who are talking about Like, the library is not immune from capitalism, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, it matters where the money goes or how it's perceived that that money is used. And you'll notice that, like, all the wealthy people, when they have meetings, they talk about how the library is a conduit to imagination Mm -hmm. and, like, how important that is and creativity. When for other people, it is essential building blocks to life that will affect them for all time. Mm -hmm. And that it's a public space where all of these things are available. Mm -hmm. But at the top, it's people who... They don't need this, but it does represent something for them that they see as important. And as long as that can, you know, spread out, it's one way to get to what needs to be done. You know, another example of the way that he uses editing in that same movie is it opens with Richard Dawkins at the 42nd Street branch. Mm -hmm. And he's giving, you know, his usual speech about, oh, you know, uh, I think atheists are as much of a voting block as Christians are. And we need to we need to become mobilized. And you hear that and you think, oh, yeah, okay, this, this is what the library is. It's all mm-hmm. these, uh, all the, all these the windbags, friggin' liberals, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know? <laughs> uh, but then the second shot is in some poorer neighborhood, like 
poor school children using the library as a resource. Yes, building robotics and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah, I those mean, things juxtaposed together says something. And that's very important to consider in Frederick Wiseman's documentaries is that he's not just like capturing these images and putting them in chronological order, even though that he said himself that he will not move stuff around in the scene to try to like tell a different story. He does compress everything and you don't notice it when you watch it, but he'll compress like an hour into like a three minute sequence mm -hmm. to give you an idea of that, but it'll feel so natural and he's so good at it that you feel as if like you're just watching it in one go. And now that he's using digital, he will increasingly though, let himself just, just go on and mm -hmm. on. Uh, we both watched his recent film in Jackson Heights about the Jackson Heights neighborhood in Queens. And there's this like centerpiece scene uh, that's that's just at this small local business where a bunch of business owners, all of them non-white, they're speaking Spanish, mm -hmm. are have collected to talk about this new business improvement district that's going to be built and that people are going to be able to vote for. And they're trying to mobilize mobilize the community against it. And they're trying to figure out how to do it. And there's this one guy who gets up and he just delivers this, I swear, 10 or 15 minute monologue about gentrification, mm -hmm. how it works, how the city tricks people in the community into thinking this is a good thing for them and how to stop it. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's incredible that he just lets it go on and on, you know? Well, you know, when you're teaching something, people don't usually absorb like new information or new knowledge that is just given bluntly to them mm -hmm. because their first reaction is to rebel against mm -hmm. it. But if you're trapped and you're listening to someone speak in that way, there's a better chance that you kind of absorb it. Mm -hmm. And I think something like in Jackson Heights, the fact that it is three hours, number one, you look at it and you're like, oh my God, it looks like so much work. But it's three hours because it's documenting all these different facets of this community, which is like one of the most multicultural places in uh, America. And it's important to see all of these slices and all these communities all speaking different languages and doing different things. At the same time, there is that through line of gentrification through all of it and how this impacts all of these people's lives. And it sneaks up on you, the fact that mm -hmm. this is the through line. You don't quite grasp it immediately. I, there's actually one recurring character who are the, I guess, community organizers, and you see them in the background of those shots because mm -hmm. they organize the meetings and they try to get the people to go up against this stuff. And, you know, he doesn't impose himself because nothing is really simple in his movies. Mm -hmm. There's no one idea there's no one simple thing in jackson heights the community is so diverse at which means there's a big trans community there's a big gay community there are uh there are homophobic people mm -hmm. you know there are people from many different income levels uh and they all coexist in this in this like stew together you know politicians come in and out there's no one thing that this community is mm -hmm. like it would be too simple for him to paint it as this is this wonderful example of diversity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is. Yeah. Um, that will disappear in five to 10 years. Yeah. And there are tensions here yeah. too. Like nothing. And it, you know, we also see in his, one of his early movies, high school, like for the most part, it depicts the high school as being this sort of fascist hellscape, but it's not just a fascist hellscape. <laughs> there's, there's like, like, there are teachers who are trying. There are teachers who are more fascist than others. Uh, let's say the buzz-cutted dean of discipline, <laughs> who has one of the, uh, I think, the quintessential Frederick Wiseman scene is him punishing the kid who, like, walked away and talked back to a teacher. Yeah. And, I mean, Frederick Wiseman, I read an article that he wrote about how he makes his movies, and he says, like, you know, you still have to have humor in what you're showing. Like, that's important. You can't just be showing, like, the facts. And sometimes the humor is not obvious to the people that are 
going through the mm-hmm. scene, but it's obvious to the viewer where this kid is being has to come to this dean of discipline. Who Frederick Wiseman, when he learned who that that was a job that existed, was like, "What could that possibly dean be?" Dean of discipline, <laughs> yeah. And this like buzz cutted jackass that just like just because he doesn't like the kid's attitude at one point, he's like, "You got the tension." The kid's like, "What?" what like i don't understand yeah and there's there's another character or is it the same character who says well you know being an individual is okay but there are places to be an <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it's him but that sounds about right yeah <laughs> yeah that, or like frederick wiseman um at one point there's a shot that everyone's discussed where the camera like zooms in on like a um young girl's uh posterior as she's doing sports mm-hmm. but then he um compares that later on to like them telling a woman like you cannot wear shorts that are this short yes <laughs> it's not just like ogling a young girl it's commenting on yeah. both these things yeah because she's wearing that in gym class yeah. where that's the actual gym uniform and they're doing these like dances that mm-hmm. they have to do in gym class and elsewhere in in the documentary there's a, a fashion show oh my god which is very hard to watch yeah. where the teacher who's running the fashion show is just mercilessly criticizing and she's everyone. like oh she's a little heavy but she knows yeah. it and it's yeah. like oh my god these girls are like cruelly sexualized mm-hmm. from a young age and then later a gynecologist comes to lecture the school on proper sexual hygiene and mm-hmm. and you know he's going on about now remember the more sexual partners you have the less capable of intimacy you'll be so, yeah. <laughs> and aren't they broken up as well by like gender because you yeah. can't have both of them talking in a sex ed class because oh boy <laughs> they had to learn what's going on at the opposite sex <laughs> catastrophe well you know high school was made in 1968 mm-hmm. a pretty key year and the high school we see in the movie is feels like this stifling place, this fortress almost. Mm -hmm. There's this teacher who almost like makes it his job to go through the halls and check to see if people are have their paul passes yeah just just a fucking ss guard basically (laughs) these people Mm -hmm. who have considered themselves failures at life so the only way they can find any satisfaction Mm -hmm. is by cracking down on these teens and making sure that they follow these specific rules that exist for some reason so it feels like this prison where kids are programmed to be good willing subjects Mm -hmm. um and yet 1968 keeps like peering through the walls like you hear about martin luther king oh or the very um fiery conversation where a teacher brings up like race in a class mm-hmm. and there's like a black student at the front surrounded by white students like the black student has no other students no. around him <laughs> and then there's that other class where you know the the teacher is like well how many of you would join oh an organization God. you know let's just say no wrong answers how many would join an organization that has a sizable minority of black people in it. And like almost no hands raised. Well, but like, then some hands start to raise and then a few others. It's like, you can kind of tell yeah, like, what is acceptable. In uh, this room, so right? uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, it ends with such like a sad scene that I, I could, I, I almost feel Frederick Wiseman when he's like filming it, he knows what he's getting. Mm-hmm. A teacher is reading a note that someone who was sent to Vietnam wrote and it's essentially like, thank you for making me the man that I am. Oh. I have to go do this job now. I think there's actually a line where he's like, I'm just a body and I have a job to do. And they're like, oh, we did such a good job. Yeah. We destroyed any sense of self. <laughs> and now he is just a puppet of the state to be uh, murdered and or murder mm-hmm. innocent people as he goes to this unjust war. I liked the poetry teacher who tried to use Simon and Garfunkel to, <laughs> to, to make poetry come alive. I thought that was nice. Yeah. Hello, fellow teens. I yeah. mean, you gotta do something. Right, <laughs> and Wiseman captures all of this again with his kind of like camera at the back 
filming what's going on. People always ask, do you think that behavior changes when you put a camera on these people? And Wiseman is the first to say that, like, well, you have to have a bullshit detector to see, oh, these people are just acting for camera. But the thing is that people go through their day and day just being themselves. People are not that good actors. <laughs> he talks about um, one of the documentaries that he made where there's a scene where a bunch of prostitutes were uh, grabbed by police officers and one of them is grabbed by the police officer and choked out for 20 seconds <laughs> and he, and then she, he just lets her go and the police officer did it as like a show of force to say like, hey, if you step out of line, this is what's going to happen to you. And Wiseman said like, the police officer didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Like, this is what he did every day. So that the fact that it happened in front of the camera or not didn't mean anything to him because that is his worldview. So, like, Wiseman is capturing these worldviews. And, I mean, some of them are terrible, like mm. this police officer. And a lot of them just, you know, they'll go about their day because Wiseman is just there for so long. Yeah, people probably just got used to him, right? Mm-hmm. Although I do think that teacher who is, like, patrolling the halls, checking people's halls, hall passes, probably thought he looked pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, but that's the best thing, right? Because that's his worldview. He doesn't have any perspective about how much of a terrible monster that he actually is. Yeah. Uh, we've kind of been working our way backwards to Wiseman's first feature-length film. And probably still his most famous, I think. Yeah, even though it was banned for 25 years. Isn't like, that crazy? Cannibal Apocalypse. Well, I mean, <laughs> w- reading up on why it was banned, and we're talking about, are we going to say the name correctly? Uh, Titty Cut Follies? Titty Cut Follies. Uh, which is a documentary about um, uh, a mental institution. I don't have the name in front of me. It's, it's uh, I've got it here. It's Bridgewater State Hospital in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And so Wiseman at the time, before he made this documentary, was working as a law professor and he would take students to the mental asylum to just show them like this fucking hellscape and what it's like to actually send someone there. And he befriended the people that worked there and he decided, oh, why don't I make a documentary of I just follow kind of the day in, day out of this institution and I don't know exactly what he wanted to do with it, but or what the people thought like was going to come out of it. But again, we're talking about worldviews, right? Where what they do every day does not seem bad to them because they do it every day. Mm-hmm. But when you suddenly present it just bare, holy shit, what a nightmare this place is. I mean, some of the things we see, there's uh, an inmate who is uh, force fed, you know, through his nose. Um, and this is intercut, actually. I mean, it's his first movie. So I th- there are certain things that he does that are a little, a little out of character yes, for Yes, where he c- compares and contrasts two scenes, but he's intercutting between them. Right. Which he never does in his later work. So we see this guy being uh, horrifically force-fed this food, and then it keeps cutting back to the same guy, now dead, later, and his body being prepared for burial. And the comparison between both of them is that when he's being force-fed, they're doing it so nonchalantly. Yeah. One of them's like, hey, could you get me some coffee over there? Mm-hmm. And he's like smoking, and he's like, don't choke back, don't choke mm-hmm. back. And when he's being prepared for burial, it's like very mannered and soft. He's being treated better dead than he ever was when he was alive and trapped in this uh, mental institution for like 15 years. So we see the guards, you know, bullying some of the uh, people who are uh, institutionalized. We see that a lot of the inmates have been stripped of their clothes. Or they're just in a room with nothing. They keep them naked at all times for their own benefit. But all the guards do when they walk is like tease them and make fun of them. One of the inmates, they just say like, hey, you make sure to keep your room clean, keep your room clean until the inmate reacts in anger. And then it reveals that the inmate lives in a room with nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's just the guard teasing him for or just torturing him for the guard's own amusement. Mm -hmm. 
And the movie is bookended by shots of the Titicut Follies, mm-hmm. which are this like annual talent show that they put on with the inmates, uh, which is also horrific. Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, the one one of the through lines through the film is like an inmate who's like, I don't want to be here. Like, I feel better. Like, I was in jail. You brought me here. I feel so much, like, worse. This is destroying me. Please, like, just let me, like, go. Like, bring me back to jail. Or just let me out. And it's it's almost like a Kafka-esque play. It's making it worse. Yeah. And, and, and like, the doctors are like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the doctors are, like, giving him nothing. Like, he's not listening to him. And there's one scene where he's talking to a whole board. Then he leaves, and the board's like, well, he's obviously suffering from paranoid delusions, and we're going to have to up his medication. It's interesting that Wiseman chooses to start the movie after the Follies scene. He starts it with this uh, extended interview between one of the people who works there and one of the new inmates who was a child molester and, in fact, uh, assaulted his own 11-year-old daughter. I mean, you know, Wiseman doesn't tell you what to think of this, but there's something about the placement of it so early in the movie, it's almost as if he's saying, you know, here's like the worst that society can produce. This is like, you're not like this. Is, this is an absolute like abject human. And now we're going to show you that even people like this don't deserve to be treated like this. Yeah, uh, He never says what any of the people did. And you get like hints here or there, but it's essentially just like human beings being tortured mm. every day, day in, day out, stripped of any dignity or sense of self, and just uh, ridiculed by these guards who, mm. these people are not people to them anymore. They're just annoyances, like farm animals that they have to deal with every day and are doing what they just wish they would go yeah. and do. It's so abstract. Like, yeah. it, it is like farm animals. Mm-hmm. Like, like they're dehumanized. Yes. And, you know, you alluded to the fact earlier that this movie was banned for 25 years, which is because, I mean, it played at the New York Film Festival and a couple other places, but the state of Massachusetts was actually able to uh, get a court order against it. Using a law they had never actually enforced ever, which was that the uh, inmates didn't have uh, the right state of mind to sign any waivers to appear in this film. And, I mean, some of the things we see... I mean, it's it's kind of a bullshit case, but on the other hand, it's like, I kind of get it. Well, I get why they wouldn't want it to appear, because mm-hmm. it makes this look like a horror show that it is. Yeah. But the fact that they would rather bury it, and I'm sure they did nothing at the uh, mental institution, and just let it run mm-hmm. the way that it was. But I mean, some of the things, the, some of the positions we see people in in this mm-hmm. movie, it's like, if, if you were in your right mind, would you want yourself... I, yeah. I, like, I mean, I'm not siding with the Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, you're like, listen, just, the state is correct of how they do things. I'm just saying, like, there is enough ambiguity here to, to make it that they Any rational not, like, in the pocket of uh, the state <laughs> judge would be like, this is a, no, like, this has yeah. no, like, legal leanings and this movie can be seen. Uh-huh. But that's not what happened. It got buried essentially for 25 years where the only people that could see it were doctors or medical students who requested it directly. Until the early 90s when it was finally released to the public. But thankfully, uh, Frederick Wiseman, or Freddie Wiseman, as I said to his friends, uh, high school really was able to like lift him off and he was able to make documentaries from that point on. He's 89 years young now. Mm -hmm. Still making docs. His last movie was Monroeville, Indiana in 2018. And, you know, it just just breaks my heart that we're probably not going to have him for much longer. Have you watched all of the films yet? Well, no. Yeah, so there's tons to discover. There's tons to discover. Because he's a guy that, like, could not stop working. I I mean, he has something like 30, 50 feature films about all kinds of subjects. I just love that he's out there, Mm -hmm. you know? And that all the stuff is being documented. And the fact that, like... 
there was never any funding body that he had to work with other than like PBS or every now and then he'd get a grant. But he talks about how proud he was to work very independently, mm -hmm. that he worked as a distributor on his early films and they, you know, withheld money. So he figured out ways he could just do it himself. And if you want his films, you have to get it directly from him and you probably can't pay it because they usually go to schools and libraries. And Canopy, I think. Yeah, has a lot Canopy has all of his yeah. films. So if you have a library account... Get on Canopy and you can watch it there. Unless Canopy is bad. I don't know. Twitter's telling me all sorts of things. And I think the one that I would start with is uh, the New York Public Library. Mm. Really? Just, you yeah. want to start with high school? That sweet 84 minutes high, versus high the three school, hours? You're right. High school is a sweet 84 minutes. But I think if you just devote an afternoon to mm. the New York Public Library and you really sit with it, you'll have a wonderful time. Uh, reading some essays about Frederick Wiseman's work, uh, one person says that like Wiseman doesn't make films to show joy. If there's joy in his films... It's usually like near the tail end where it's an individual can go and get that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that the institution, whether like maybe they help them a little bit, but usually it's them being able to find their own independence or finding something in their own pocket of time. New York Library or uh, Ex Libris mm -hmm. is filled with joy mm -hmm. because it's people that actually want to be doing these things. And even the institutional bodies actually are working towards a, you know, universal goal as opposed to a capitalist one. Well, you know, there was also a scene in, in Jackson Heights that I found very moving, which mm -hmm. is just at a laundromat where there were like two people doing a little concert yes. with like a xylophone and there was a whole crowd there. And, it, and it's just like his, his later movies particularly have moments like this where it's just like just just something nice to help you muddle through life, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, this is miserable. Corporations will crush us. We'll have nothing. We'll all live in condos. But, you know, sometimes there'll be a little bit of music that can make you happy. Yeah. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can rate and review us on, I guess it's Apple Podcasts. I don't think they call it iTunes anymore. Really? So yeah, we got two this month. So thank you very much to the people who did that. How long has it not been iTunes? <laughs> I don't know, but I listened to, I don't know, NPR and they're like, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. She was. Yep. Or, and we're all over the place now too. You can listen to us on Spotify. We're up there. So yeah. no excuse. You should be listening to us 24-7. We have enough episodes. But if you listen to all of them we have a patreon one this week and what are we talking about will uh speaking of direct cinema we are looking at d.a pennebaker's groundbreaking documentary about bob dylan don't look back so does this mean we have a full-on bob dylan episode where i question you about your love of dylan are we both bitter that he went electric <laughs> who knows does one of us prefer his christian music to everything else i mean you're gonna have to listen to the episode uh, five dollars a month you'll get that one our whole back catalog and all sorts of goodies commentary tracks for public domain movies you can watch at home including the recently released detour from the criterion collection yeah, sync it up to your criterion blu-ray because <laughs> there's no goddamn commentary on that blu-ray we made detour yeah. <laughs> we did the commentary and then a few weeks later criterion announced that they're releasing the blu-ray trend toppers <laughs> yep all right so what are we doing next week will well we wanted to do something uh, kind of far away from frederick wiseman we wanted to <laughs> we want to have all the colors of the rainbow in this podcast so we are are investigating the short but brilliant career of Polly Shore. Wait, Polly Shore? The weasel himself? Yes, and I you probably are listening to this and you're thinking that's a joke. 
<laughs> nope. Well, it got brought up as a Patreon episode topic, and I went, ah, there's too much to explore there. Encino Man, Biodome, In the Army, Jury Duty, Son-in-Law. And who uh, could forget his meta-movie, Polly Shore is Dead. Which is really what sold me on this episode. What about Polly Ticks? <laughs> stand-up special that he did. I watched a bit of his interview with Herman Cain, and I was disappointed. Oh, okay. I mean, you've already uh, uncovered some pathetically sad uh, footage of him doing a stand-up set. Oh, dark. I watched... <laughs> so dark. I watched five minutes of him on Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. Also oh, dark. boy. Uh, and we already met somebody, just mentioning this episode, that has two autographed items by Polly Shore. Oh, man, we're burning all our good content. <laughs> I right know. Now, so, But, like, uh, was Polly Shore important for you? Right, but we'll give him a hint of taste. No. No, but he was omnipresent when we were kids, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Biodome. Mm, can't wait to revisit. And by that, I mean I'm scared. <laughs> but that'll be us next week. Don't, ugh, me. You're excited to dive into oh, the yeah. shoreness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So until then, I'm Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Speaking of Polly Shore, we watched another reviled comedy from the 90s <laughs> last week. Starring from someone who could essentially star in one of our, like, failed comedian or feature film comedian episodes, Mr. Martin Short. Well, we say failed comedian. Oh, but he's, he's successful. He was in tons of movies. I... Pure Luck, <laughs> Captain Ron, oh, Father he... of the Bride Parts 1 and 2. Yeah, that's right. And he's good friends with Steve Martin, so we can go on tour with him. And he's considered one of the nicest comedians around. He's the, the uh, what is it, the comedian of comedians, as articles about him would say. You know, I've always felt fondly towards Martin Short, but me too. You're what? like, I, like, where is Hidden Gems but, but, is what you yeah, think. Yeah, but I'm thinking, like, when has he ever made me laugh? I mean, you went to go see a concert with your mom of uh, Martin Short, didn't you? This is true. Back when I was working at the Woolwich Observer newspaper, uh, I got a free ticket to see him in Kitchener. Mm-hmm. I got two free tickets, so I took my mom. And, you know, we were wa- <laughs> we were watching his show. Yeah. I mean, you know, who else am I going to take? <laughs> yeah, you don't have Short. any significant others, your mom. <laughs> and your dad's like, not interested. Yeah. Um, if I got a ticket now, I probably wouldn't go. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, you so would. If you got a Martin Short ticket now, you're like, maybe he's good. But it would be with Steve Martin. Well, that would sweeten the deal a bit. Yeah. Because okay. I like him more than I like Martin, Martin Short. Martin Short. But you went to this concert. So Martin Short did all of his uh, iconic characters. You know, Jiminy Glick. Um, that guy, uh, Ed Grimley. Yeah. I, I was trying to do the hair. I was trying to... <laughs> you, know, you know, the hair that Ed Grimley has. I was trying to, like think are there Jiminy Glick fans out there it was the thing that when you'd get on the comedy network you'd be like oh man not this and then you go to a different channel I think the Jiminy Glick fans are all like powerful showbiz people you think that's what because like, he's bringing truth to power it's because you know Tom Hanks or somebody saw Jiminy Glick and it's like that's what I would experience okay, and for people who don't know what Jiminy Glick is he's like a parody of what, is it like a, a junket interviewer yeah like, and it's just Martin Short in a big fat suit like doing like crazy slapstick the cover of his Jimmy Glick and La La Land cover <laughs> is like him like leaning back, isn't it? And being like caught by a bunch of people because that's do, what he does. Let's do a Patreon episode on that one. Oh boy. But Jimmy Glick, like the show was he would interview big showbiz people. Yeah. Did they know it was Martin Short? Yeah, yeah. It was, okay. it was just like Steve Martin and Tom <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hanks and all his friends, you know. Yeah. Ah! What you doing? Ugh, terrible. Anytime I would follow on that. So this is a long pre... Oh, oh, oh he also did so, the Father of the Bride yeah, character. Yeah, that was the last thing. And the real question is, did he do his Clifford character? He did not do Clifford. Okay, well, what's Clifford? So Clifford was a movie that was shot in 1990 and released in 1994. <laughs> Because it was so good, they were just saving it for the right time. And for people that don't know, Clifford's premise is that 
Martin Short plays a how old is ten year old boy? Ten year old boy, and he and, was like forty five. Yeah, by, by and like time. I guess Martin Short is a small guy, so he doesn't get on his knees or anything. He's not dwarfing it up. <laughs> I think he's dwarfing it up a little bit. Oh, yeah, maybe a little bit. And he plays up against um, Charles Grodin, who I don't think we've ever talked about on this, except in the context of the Elaine May episode. Well, I love Charles Grodin. We both love Charles Grodin. And it's essentially like, and I checked, and it did come after, or I guess it was made in 1990, maybe it came before, The Problem Child, like that wave of like troublesome Mm. kids movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just Martin Short, torturing Charles Grodin. That's the whole movie. Yeah, so Martin Short is kind of like the bad seed. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a bad kid who's staying with his uncle and he really wants to go to this dinosaur-themed theme park mm-hmm. in, in Los Angeles. But his uncle uh, is too busy trying to create a ma- maquette of the public transportation system that's going to be introduced in Los Angeles and, you know, complications arise. He doesn't have time for Clifford. So Clifford, oh boy, he starts taking revenge, problem child style. Now, I should say, I'd seen this movie. We did a double bill, uh, Clifford and Cabin Boy. And wow, there was never a, a night with less laughs in the uh, <laughs> the Laser Blast household. Um, I remember we just sat there in stony silence watching all of it. So when Neon Dreams, the uh, series at the Royal Cinema, which is great, run by Brendan Ross, decided to do a 35mm um, 25th anniversary on Martin Short's birthday. 35mm. 35mm. Uh, that will never happen again. <laughs> that will never happen again. Even with an introduction by the director, who I don't recall his name. I think Paul Flaherty. Yeah, who He's, is the Joe's, brother. Joe's brother, yeah. And it played to a shockingly full audience. Mm-hmm. I guess people were nostalgic for Clifford. And I sat down and I was like, you know what? People love this. Like They like, they love. Maybe there's something that I missed. And I had, because the movie's hilarious. We laughed all the way through. All the way through. (laughs) Uh, Because, so, not only does Clifford have revenge on Charles Grodin, he ruins Charles Grodin's (laughs) life. Systematically. And, I mean, Brendan Ross, during his introduction, I I think it was a little hard on the movie, but it was a good preparation for it, where he's like, there's jokes, but they're not really funny. What's funny is... It's just Martin Short and Charles Grodin's face as these things go on. Yeah, he said everything is funny in the movie except the jokes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, you know, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't agree, but it, it is a good setup because like, you have to prepare yourself for the idea that this very premise... Because yeah. when this movie came out in the 90s, critics hated it and they could not get past the fact that Martin Short was a boy. Half star from Roger Ebert. Uh, I believe one of the lines was like, this film should not exist. <laughs> Essentially, the film is anti-comedy. Like, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. That it's almost like the premise is so ridiculous that that's what's funny about it. And that's what causes laughs in the audience. It's so ridiculous. And these two guys are so committed. Yes. And they're they're perfectly complimentary performances. Martin Short is, like, insane playing a small boy. Yeah. Um, Just, like, mugging it up. Just rubber face the entire time. And Charles Grodin dead straight it's so straight so <laughs> serious so real yeah the, the scene near the end when like clifford has finally completely destroyed his life like charles Grodin is about to present this thing don't to, spoil it but it just goes wrong it goes wrong and Grodin's face Grodin doesn't mug yeah <laughs> and you, you like you're watching it and you're like charles Grodin's gonna murder martin short <laughs> like, yeah. that that's what the movie's leading up to uh, there's a scene i think it's probably the um like uh, signature scene of the movie where Charles Grodin is trying to get Martin Short to agree with him after Martin Short 
has essentially like done so many bad things and he's like why can't you just look like a human boy look at look at me look at me like a human boy you can't do it and martin short like just does like 30 reactions like in a row just weird faces trying to look (laughs) human and it's so funny because it's martin short trying to look like a human boy (laughs) and charles groden is just talking to him as if he is a boy (laughs) and then he's like uh, he's like no you don't get your dinosaur no you don't get it ah or there's there's one part that where he's like now you tell my girlfriend that we're the best of friends (laughs) and then martin short goes we are aren't we and he goes shut up It just escalates in a perfect way. The only things that don't work are the weird bookends. Well, those like, were added by the studio later. Oh, you, you looked into yeah, it? Yeah, okay. after, after it tested poorly. <laughs> and then it continued to test poorly and they left it on a shelf. And, you know, so we saw that video introduction that Paul Flaherty had sent, which was also great mm-hmm. because he framed himself with, with a David Lean biography in the background. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That made me laugh so much. Uh, do you think that he had some leanish qualities when he made Clifford? And... Well, he was he he kept saying, you know, originally we had a scene in the movie where Marty would talk to Patty McCormick, and she she made a cameo. And uh, Patty McCormick, being the uh, actor who played the bad seed in the movie The Bad Seed as a child, and we had to cut that scene. And I think if we had left that scene, and people would have understood the premise better. <laughs> nope. Because they don't know what Patty McCormick looks like as an yeah. adult. And frankly, if you're not sold on Martin Short as a 10-year-old boy, you're not going to be sold on it at, uh, at any point. But can we just talk about a little bit about, like, the end of the movie where, like, it, it reminded me of things that, like, a 90s comedy would do that movies now just don't have where they go to this, like, insane theme park with dinosaurs and, mm. like, their actual robots and stuff oh, that are going great. towards. Oh, it was It was like a Ray Harryhausen movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, that idea of, like, that kind of practical, tactile feeling to comedies doesn't exist anymore when you make them. Yeah. And it made me kind of sad, but, you know, we always have Clifford, which is waiting to be released by the Criterion Collection at any moment, I'm sure. 